Father, you are in this room with us. Let us not go through the motions tonight. Let us not um, somehow do a worship service and not acknowledge that you're here. Let us not talk about you like you are not present. But Father, I pray that you would just make us hyper aware of your presence in this room right now. Pray that you would fill this room, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds, that we might have ears to hear what you would have to say to us, Father. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey guys, it's been a really long time since I think we've all been together um, with spring break and all of that. And then also, it's been a long time, I feel like, since I've been um, up here. And so, I'm, I'm super excited uh, to be here, and uh, I'm super excited about this Ecclesiastes series. It's just been awesome. I've, I've loved it, uh, and I've learned a lot from it, and so I hope you have too. Uh, so we're just going to jump right in. So we are in Ecclesiastes, and so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5, and we've been walking through this book of Ecclesiastes for the past several weeks, and just um, by way of refresher, let's, let's talk a little bit about what we're reading here. So Ecclesiastes is a book in the, what we call wisdom literature, right? And so if you're, if you're here on Sundays a lot, then right now uh, we've been going through Proverbs. That's also a part of the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is another book in the wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, Job, um, there's several others. And so uh, this is a particular kind of uh, genre that was, it kind of demands that we read it in a specific way. And specifically for Ecclesiastes, um, one thing to remember is that the vast majority of the text that we will read is actually spoken in, from the mouth of a character within the book known as the, the preacher or the, pre, or, or the teacher. Um, the Hebrew word is Kohelet. And so if I accidentally say Kohelet, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's uh, the preacher, the teacher, one who gathers somebody together, gathers a group of people together in order to teach. And so this preacher has been walking through this book and um, you know, the opening line is, um, and the Hebrew word is Hevel, Hevel, Hevelim. Everything is Hevel. Meaning like in the English translation, it's something like, you know, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Or maybe your translation says meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or um, really the picture that um, this word hevel uh, uh, connotes, the picture that it, that it represents is that of like smoke or vapor, right? We've talked about this over and over again. It's like what he's describing is that most of life is like a, like a cloud of smoke or like a cloud of vapor where you're like you try, to, you try to grab hold of it. You try to take control of it. You try to win at it. You try to get your way. But as soon as you try to grab it, it slips through your fingers, disappears, and you're left empty-handed. And so he says that most of life most of life is meaningless. He goes through all, all these pursuits. He's kind of like a, a scientist in this way. He's observing life. He's looking at um, the world as he sees it, and he's observing people do things, and he's diving into the experiment himself, and, and he's making conclusions based on his observations of life. So he says, you know, I pursued a bunch of money and a career and all that stuff, and it, it ultimately was hevel. It left me empty-handed. Or I pursued sex and pleasure, and it ultimately was hevel as well. It left me empty-handed. In fact, most most of the text that we have read throughout this series, um, the conclusion basically is life is hevel. 
And like I said, most of your translations are going to either say vanity or meaningless to, to translate that word. And so he's basically been looking at all of life. And though this is not exactly what he's saying, but it kind of gets to, uh, uh, it gets close to it. He's saying, like, look at all of life, all the pursuits that you could have, all the things that you could do with life, all the things that you could attain in life. It's all vain. It's all meaningless. And you know, like we have, uh, as religious people, most of us in this room probably um, are religious people in, in some sort of way. Maybe you grew up in church, you grew up in some religious tradition, or you live in the Bible Belt, and there's just kind of that religiosity that's kind of ingrained into our culture. If you, if you have not grown up that way, that's, that's great, um, and, and so we're really glad that you are here. But for many of us who are more religious have been looking at uh, the teacher, looking at the preacher, listening to what he is saying to everybody else about the pursuit of sex, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of a career, the pursuit of fame, whatever it is, and saying like, oh yeah, tell them, tell them teacher, tell them preacher that all of that stuff is meaningless. All of that stuff is going to leave them empty handed. Yeah, let them go after sex. It's going gonna, it's gonna to leave them dissatisfied. Let them go after money. It's going to leave them empty handed. Tell them preacher, tell them. And, and, and what's going to happen in the text that we read in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes is that the, the preacher is going to, to take a turn and look toward us. Right, so like maybe when you were a kid, you remember um, uh, telling on somebody, some other kid for doing something bad, right? So you like observed an injustice or a crime against the rules of the classroom or the rules of the house. And, and you decided that you were going to be a good citizen and you were going to report this. And so you go to the person in authority, maybe it's the parent, maybe it's the teacher, and you say, teacher, this person did this. And then while the teacher is scolding that person, getting them in trouble, laying down their sentence, their punishment, you've got a smile on your face and you're thinking, man, I'm a hero. I'm a crime fighter. I'm like Superman. And then the teacher turns to you and says, I'll deal with you in a minute. And you're like, what? Like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. This is exactly what's about to happen to those of us who would be kind of on the, on the side of, of religion, on the, of, of a re religious flavor. The, the preacher's going to take a, a turn from us, from, the, from the, uh, the people who have been trying to pursue all of this pleasure. He's been scolding for the past, you know, uh, first half of this book, and now he's about to take a turn to us and say, hey, religious people, I haven't forgotten about you. And we're about to be like, What? And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1, this is what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. And you, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity or there is hevel. But God is the one you must fear. 
So there's some background work that we need to do here. There's some explanation that I need to, um, to, to give you. And so uh, you, you, you noticed in, in the text, especially in the first couple of lines there, that he's talking a lot of, he mentions these things like the temple or the house of God is what he says, um, the house of the Lord and, and sacrifice and stuff like that. And what he is referring to is, is the prescribed way of worshiping God for his time for his people. Okay, so this guy lives in ancient Israel. He is a, uh, an Israelite, a Hebrew um, person. And, and the system that has been suscri- uh, prescribed to him in, on how to relate to God, how to worship God, is primarily driven toward the temple. And the, temp- the temple is this massive, ornate, beautiful, holy building in the middle of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And it's the place where God's presence is thought to be. Right, so, so this is the way that God has with his people who are sinful. This holy God has set up a system for them, a place for them where he can be present with his people. And the way that they can enter into God's presence is through the way of sacrifice. Because God is so holy, perfect, set apart, and his people are so sinful, there had to be blood spilled. There had to be some sort of system created, some sort of way created so that God could be with his people and his people could be with God. And so in his grace, God sets up what we call the sacrificial system. So this might have been something like somebody going to the temple and offering like the best of their young lambs on the altar or maybe the first fruits of their crop or something like that. Some way to worship God. I know that's something that we don't do now, but that's, that's the system that he's in in his day. And so he's talking about the worship of God and what he is doing, rather than kind of observing his own experiences with himself, you, you can kind of see in this text that he doesn't say I a whole lot like he does in the rest of the Ecclesiastes um, in, the, in the text that we've been reading, but it, it, this is more of like observing other people. And so it, you can kind of picture the teacher, the preacher, just standing outside right next to the temple, observing people going in, making their sacrifice, going out, and people going in and out of the temple day by day. He is observing the worship of the Israelite people, and he says, it's hevel. It's vanity. And that's interesting because, you know, those of us who are religious, maybe the entire time that we have been uh, reading Ecclesiastes, you know, it's, it's very easy for us to be like, yeah, of course, life is hevel when you pursue sex over everything else. Life is vanity when you pursue money over everything else. Life is, is hevel. Life is meaningless when you pursue a career or fame or influence or whatever over anything else. Like, of course, those things are meaningless. The only way that life actually has meaning is if you worship God. And then you look at the preacher and he says something like this and you say, wait, hold on, the worship of God is hevel. Like, what do you mean? How can the worship of God be meaningless? And and here's, here's what I think the preacher is getting at. As the preacher watches people go in and out of the temple, he makes one big observation, and then he kind of gets at the root of the problem. And the big observation is, is as people go in and out of the temple making their sacrifices, what he observes is a casual attitude. What he observes is a casual attitude towards God and towards the things of God. And how does he notice this? How does he see this? What's the evidence for this casual attitude? Well, he sees it by the way the people walk and by the way the people talk. You see that in the first line, in in verse one of of chapter five, it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. 
Now, I don't think he's necessarily talking about, like, he's not commenting on, like, the actual way people are walking up the steps of the temple. Like, he's not saying, like, your form is off, bro. Like, that's not what he's saying. Um, but what he is saying is what he's, he's observing is a wrong approach. That the people are approaching the worship of their God. They're approaching the temple, the place where God's presence is thought to be. Um, it, 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 they're approaching this wrong. And like, like maybe, maybe you've seen this in movies, like back in the day. Um, uh, uh, like in the Middle Ages or, you know, back when we had lots of kings and empires and stuff like that, um, uh, you know, uh, kings always had some sort of rule about how you behaved as a common person or as a non-king person in their court, in their throne room right? Are you with me? So like for many kings, like this is real historical stuff. Um, for many kings, the rule was that you could never uh, go without facing the king. So like when you approach the throne, you're facing him. But even when you leave, you can't, you can't turn around. You have to walk backwards. It's just out of respect, right? Or, or, or some kings um, would make sure that, that everybody had to look down at the floor. And you were always looking at the floor, never making eye contact with the king until the king gave you permission to lift up your head. Or even some who were, you know, just a little bit more intense would actually require people to, from the door of the throne room all the way to the throne, crawl on their hands and their knees, never walking on two feet, always down on the floor, making sure that they realize who's in the room with them and who they're about to address. Right, and, and so it's kind of a physical posture, it, it, it rules in the king's throne room, a physical posture to remind your heart and your soul and your mind of who's in the room with you and the importance of this moment, right? This, this is a strategy that kings have um, for, for demanding respect. And the preacher is watching these people go through the motions of worship, and what he's noticing is that there's just a casual attitude. They don't know, he even says, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's going on when they enter into the temple and they offer their sacrifices. They're going through the motions of worship, but they have no idea what's really happening. If they did, they wouldn't have such a casual attitude. They don't know who's in that room with them or who the, who the God is that they're worshiping. If they did, it would change the way that they worship. And the second thing that he notices is, is that they talk. And it's not necessarily just the way that they talk, but the fact that there is so much talking going on. You notice that he, he says, man, there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of talking. And this casual attitude, and, and Proverbs will actually say a lot about how a fool's mouth will just run and run and run and run and run. And, and so you, you've probably been in rooms You've probably been in rooms before where, where like there's like you know three or four people you're having a conversation or something like that and, and then somebody says something like somber. Somebody says something solemn, like something serious and, and everybody kind of like the mood just kind of drops in the room and it's something serious and you, 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 like everyone kind of is respecting the moment. You're understanding what's going on and then this dude walks into the conversation. He's like, what's up, man? How's it going? Do everything, whatever. And he just keeps talking and he keeps talking and he keeps talking and he keeps talking because he, he has no idea what happened right before he entered in this conversation. Like that's, that's what he's observing. The preacher is saying, these people are walking in and they are just running their mouths. In fact, they're running their mouths so much that they're getting themselves into trouble. They're making deals with God that they can't actually keep. They're making promises to God that they can't keep their end of the, the bargain. Uh, 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 they can't keep their end of the bargain. And so like he, he's observing that they are talking too much and that their mouth is actually getting them into trouble. They are seeking to, to manipulate God. They're not viewing God for who he is. They don't understand what is going on. And here's the deal. 
This is not just an ancient Hebrew problem. This is a modern Christian problem. This is a modern Christian problem. When, when I was a kid growing up and then even into high school and college, um, probably the biggest fear for most ministry leaders in, in the tradition I grew up in and, and probably the location in the country that I grew up in and the Bible Belt and stuff like that, the, the biggest fear for most ministry leaders for their, uh, the people that they led was that those people would fall into legalism that they would fall into like a do's and don'ts Christianity. That's like um, what was preached, like for, to the generation before me, much of what was preached was this, you need to get your life right, you need to you need, uh, you know, better yourself, you need to change your behavior, modify your behavior, this kind of stuff. And so these guys who grew up in that kind of um, preaching, grew up in that kind of a tradition or whatever you wanna call it, an environment, were just kind of really reacting to that. And they were saying, no, 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 it's not about getting your life right, it's not about becoming a better person, it's not about do and don'ts. It's not about following the rules. You can't earn your way to God. You can't do that. It's about grace and you, it's about being transformed, that kind of a thing. Like, like and, and their biggest fear was that you would fall into a do's and don'ts legalistic Christianity, that, that I might try to earn God's love by doing Christian things, by being holy and not being unholy, avoiding sin and doing good things, right? And, and listen, don't ever hear me say that I disagree with that message, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that message. Legalism is not the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of grace. But I can tell you that when it comes to your generation, legalism is the least of my concerns. When it comes to your generation, I know probably some of you grew up in a legalistic environment and stuff, but for many of you, and certainly for Gen Z as a whole, legalism is not the concern. Hedonism, a pursuit of pleasure, is the concern that your generation is much less likely to, to fall into the temptation of a do's and don'ts Christianity, of I've gotta earn my way to God kind of Christianity. Your generation is far more tempted by a casual attitude towards God and the things of God. That you tend to, and this is not accusatory, this is pastoral, that what I see in many people just slightly younger than me um, today is, is, is a casual attitude towards things like church. It's just another organization that you're a part of, like your fraternity or like your sorority or your sports team or your social club. It's just another thing. Or, or, or things like, like service. It's, it's, it's a commitment that I make. I'm gonna commit myself to this thing for a year, but then you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. I'm gonna drop out halfway through. I'm not gonna honor my commitments. It's just this casual attitude. Or, you know, like, I, I know that God, like, I, I love God. I, I, I like God. He, he's really good and stuff. But there's a few things that he's demanding of me. There's a few things that he says about what is good and what's going to help me flourish that I disagree with, that I don't really like. And so I'm going to set those parts of God to the side. I'm going to take what I like about God, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of that other stuff. And I'm going to be able to pick and choose the things that God says that I like. And then I'm going to be able to get rid of the things that, that I don't like. There's this casual attitude towards God. And, and, and the preacher observes this, and, and what he would say is, you don't really understand what kind of God you're talking about. You don't really understand who's in the room. The preacher says that they don't really know what's going on when they worship. They don't really know where they are, and they don't know 
that God is there. And even if they knew that God was there, they don't know who that God really is anyway. And this is why he says in verse 2, in verse 2, he says that statement. He says, don't you know that God is in heaven and you are on earth? Now, this is not primarily a geographical statement. What he is not saying is that God is up there and you are down here. What he is saying is that God is God and you are not. God is king and you need to realize that you are not. God is eternal. You are mortal. God is infinite. You are finite. God is almighty. You are weak and fragile. God is God and you are not. You don't really understand what kind of God you are uh, presuming to worship. Like, like just let's, let's, let's get to know the God that we are worshiping just a little bit, right? So uh, in Exodus, Moses leads the people to a place called Mount Sinai and, and, and God wants to have a meeting with Moses and God's presence rests on Mount Sinai um, in the form of like a, like a thunderous cloud, like a, like a storm. And what God says to Moses is, listen, you need to tell your people, when I'm on this mountain, if they touch the mountain, if they so much as touch the side of the mountain, they're dead. Or, or maybe uh, in the temple, since we're talking about the temple, the tradition in the temple, once a year, they would have the high priest, like the priest of all priests, like the guy in charge. Um, what he would do is he would enter into the innermost chamber of the temple. And the innermost chamber of the temple was called the, the Holy of Holies. And it was the actual room where God's presence was. And, and what they would do when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies is they would actually tie a rope around his waist and they would go backwards and they'd have an end to it and they would hold on to the other end. So that when he entered into the holy of holies, if he had some unconfessed sin, some hidden sin in his life, or if he had gone through the ritual washings incorrectly, or if something had done, if he had done something that, that was incorrect, if he had not taken it seriously, if he'd gone in with a casual attitude, that they could pull his dead body out of the holy of holies without having to go in themselves. Or, or anything like that's that's Old Testament, Justin. Well, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, literally, he says, guys, I just need you to know that some of your people have gotten sick and died because you are practicing the Lord's Supper incorrectly. Like, don't be casual with the things of God. Don't be casual with God. Check out when John uh, one of Jesus' followers has this vision. We call it the Revelation. Um, in Revelation chapter four, he gets to visit the throne room of heaven. And here, we're gonna read it here. Um, this is John speaking. It says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, uh, uh, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front, of, in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature like the face of a 
a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Like, I don't know if you caught that picture because it was so freaking weird, but here's the deal. Like, there's a throne in heaven. This is not a future thing that he's seeing. This is currently the truth. This is currently the reality. There's a throne room in heaven and the creator of the universe sits on it and it's like thunder and lightning and, and he can't even describe what God looks like. It's like Jasper and Carnelian. It's like this, it's like that. It's like, I can't just tell you what it is. It's just like something. I can't really grasp it. It's something that's beyond my imagination. And this one who sits on the throne, there's lightning and thunder coming out from the throne and around the throne there are 24 other thrones of these things called elders, not like elders of a church. These are crazy different elders and they're wearing crowns and they're laying the crowns before the throne and then there's these creatures. Did you see the description of those creatures? Like it's crazy. I don't wanna see a drawing of those creatures. Like I don't wanna see that picture. And they're covered in eyes and they're like different creatures and, and stuff like that. They're just massively terrifying things going on in this throne room and they're all bowing down to the one on the throne and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Day and night, they never cease to say that. That's not a throne room that you walk into casually. That's a throne room that you walk in on your hands and on your knees, head down, face to the floor, not saying a word. Silent. Because what could you say? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. The God that you presume to worship is terrifying. In fact, when Isaiah has a similar vision to John, he sees the glory of God, and you know what he says? He cries out, he says, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm dead because God is so holy and I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinful man. That the very sight of God doesn't bring Isaiah joy, it brings him terror because he recognizes that he is sinful and therefore the presence of God is deadly to him. The God that we worship is a terrifying God. So how do you approach this God? One way to see how you approach this God is by observing the way that you pray. Uh, When you pray, when you pray, when you enter into the presence of God, when you seek to, whether it be in the morning or or I don't know when it it is for you and stuff, but when you kind of like regular prayer times, and stuff, when you, when you enter into those moments where you are seeking God's presence, when you're entering into his presence, like, do you do a lot of talking or do you do more listening? Because listen, it's not bad to talk to God. God wants you to talk to him. He wants you to praise him. He wants you to ask, you, ask him for what you need. Like, he encourages you to do that over and over again in the scriptures. But what can happen is that you could do, end up doing a lot of talking and not a whole lot of listening. And I would say if that's the case, then you're not, you don't know who's in the room with you. You're not aware of who, who that God is. Because if you were aware of who that God was, it wouldn't really matter what you have to say. You would care a whole lot less about what you have to say to this God, and you would be really desperate to hear from that God. You would be really desperate to hear what that God had to say to you, not what you had to say to that God. How do you approach this God? 
I had a friend uh, when I was in college that I used to go to a bunch of church worship services and stuff like that. He had a lot of influence on me and and stuff. And so we'd go to, you know, Sunday morning or Thursday night or whatever it is. We'd go to these church worship services and in rooms just like this one. And, and we would sing songs, we'd worship. And, and I began to notice something about him. It was kind of just kind of this weird thing about him that the worship leader would like, you know, say, okay, everybody, let's stand up and let's sing and stuff. And the lights would go down and, and the words would go on the screen and the music would start and we'd start singing. Everybody would stand up and, and raise their hands and get real into it and stuff like that. And, and I look over at him all the time and he, I'm sitting next to him and he's just over here like this. And I'm like, what's he doing? And he's just, I mean, the guy next to him is like, I love you, Jesus. And he's like, What's going on? He fall asleep? Like, what's going on? And I just look at him. I just look at him. And so the whole room, you know, the whole room is like, I love you, Jesus. I love you so much. I love you so much. And then he's like this, and I'm like this. Like, what's going on, man? You doing okay? You know, and, and it's, just, it's just weird. And then he would, he would just, a couple of verses into the song, he'd just go like, and then he'd lift his hand, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't staring. You know, kind of, the, and it's like, what, what's going on? And, and I asked him. One time, I said, man, listen, I've noticed that when, like, when we sing, you just like hibernate. Like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I never want to enter into worship of God without making sure that I am realizing who's in the room with me, who's the God that I'm worshiping, and that my heart and my mind are, are right for that. I don't want to enter into worship of God casually. I want to make sure that my heart and my mind are prepared to enter into the throne room of God. And that, that's, that's what the Bible calls, that kind of attitude, that kind of way of approaching God is, is what uh, the, uh, the preacher here in, in the last verse of our section, in verse 7, and what the Bible calls the fear of God. The fear of God. And you might think, okay, well, the fear of God, like, like I don't, like, I got, Justin, I, I thought we were New Testament Christians, right? Like, so, like, we don't have to fear God anymore. Like, I get that he's wrathful. I get that he's terrifying and stuff like that. But, like, Jesus died on the cross, right, so that we don't have to fear God anymore. He forgave us so that we don't have to fear God anymore. And, like, we, 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 we can go to him boldly and confidently. Like, I don't, I don't like this idea of having to fear God. I want to go to him boldly and confidently. And I would say, yeah, like, absolutely. You are absolutely right because of what Jesus did because God became man he, he, he entered into our presence he became one of us and he lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserved all the wrath of God toward all sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross and, and he rose from the dead bringing in the new creation so that I might be able to approach that throne boldly but don't confuse boldness with presumption He's still that same God. He is still in heaven, and you are still on earth. He is still God, and you are not. Like when you worship, how do you approach God? When you, when you go about life, because here's the deal. The, the preacher is talking about the temple. He's talking about a certain place, a certain moment, a certain act, but now... 
because of Jesus, we don't worship in a temple. He was the sacrifice. There's no need for more sacrifices anymore. And we have the Holy Spirit. So now, as a collection of believers, as a family of God, we are the temple of God. Like, there's, there's nothing special about this building right here except when you and I fill it. When we get in the room together to, to worship God, we become, we are the temple of God. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is present with us, which means that, that because we don't go to the temple, we don't offer sacrifices or anything like that, that's not the way that we worship God. In fact, the New Testament says that all of life is now our offering to God. All of life is our sacrifice to God. And so when you walk on a day-to-day basis, like when you get up in the morning, like, like how are you approaching God? Like, like when you get up into the morning and you enter into the presence of God, so to speak, like, like are you casual or are you aware of who the God is that you're walking before? Like, like are, are you aware as you go to class, as you're at your sorority meetings, at your fraternity meetings, that you're at basketball games? Like are you, are you aware of the God who you are before in that moment? Are you aware of that God? If you are in here and you are not a follower of Jesus, first of all, like I said, I want you to know we are super happy that you are here. And I want you to know that I love you so much and I don't love you near as much as God loves you. But the God that I am describing prescribes the way that he ought to be approached, prescribes the way that he ought to be worshiped. And there is one way to approach this God and to approach him any other way is deadly. It is dangerous. And the one way to approach this God is through his son, Jesus Christ. The one way to approach this God is through Jesus. And I pray that you would humbly and reverently and just a little fearfully approach the throne of God and that you would say, listen, I I have no reason to be in your presence I have no right to be here. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a woman of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, God. And you are holy. You are in heaven and I'm on earth. But Father, because of Jesus, I want to approach your throne, not presumptuously, but boldly. And that terrifying God will welcome you in. Because here's the deal. The good news of the gospel is that that terrifying God is ours in Jesus Christ. That terrifying God, we get to call him Father. That terrifying God is ours and nothing can separate us from the love of that terrifying God. That God is on our side. That changes things, right? That changes things quite a bit. That no longer do I have to look at that God and and be terrified and and, and, and fearful, but I I can't be presumptuous. I can't think that I'm, I'm good enough to just walk in, but here's the deal. I now get to call that God Father. I get to call that God my Savior. I get to call that God my friend, and I get to enter into that throne room, not on my hands, on my knees, but on my feet, saying, God, you, you have made me clean. You have made me clean. That God has invited all of us in, everyone in this room has invited us in to his throne room so that we might be called his children. Again, boldly, but not presumptuously. Here's what I want to do. Tonight we're going to, um, we're going to worship. 
And like we said, that singing is not the only way that we worship, but it is one of the ways that we worship. And maybe you've been coming to college gathering over and over again and, and, and stuff, and, and maybe this is an event for you that's more social, um, that, that you, you are here to, to, to be seen and to see your friends and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are a community. We're a family. We want to see each other. We want to encourage one another. Um, but, but this event has never really been for you an opportunity where you might experience the presence of God. That you, that you might um, hear from the Lord. And this is, again, not the only place that you can do that, but this is a place where God will be present in a special way because we are gathered. And so before we, we enter into singing, before you, you, you worship, I'm not saying that you have to hibernate for a little bit, but what I do want, uh, I want you to know is, is that you should not, you should not approach this God presumptuously or casually. That you ought to think just a little bit, just for, just for a second, about who the God is that you are about to worship and that you ought to allow that to change the way that you worship him and then it ought to change the way that you walk out of here and worship him with your life, knowing that he has invited you in through Jesus. What a gift that we get to call that terrifying God Father. Let's pray. Father, we do so much talking. We make so much noise. We walk in to your presence. Honestly, a lot of times like we own the place. So, Father, we thank you for the warning from the preacher here to not go through the motions of worship casually, such as hevel, such as vanity. But, Father, we pray that in this moment that you would reveal to us who you are. that we would be able to witness your transcendence, your greatness, your otherness, just your unimaginable power and glory, God. Father, also that we would worship you because that transcendent, other, holy, 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 powerful God is not distant from us, but came to live and dwell among us, and that you are with us in this room, that you are with us in our hearts and in our souls and your Holy Spirit, Father, that that transcendent God is imminent, that great God is also good. That terrifying God also loves us with a love that we will never understand. And so, Father, I pray that we would not worship you casually tonight. 
but that we would worship you as if we were in that throne room right now, along with those creatures and with those elders, singing day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May it be so, God. Amen.